Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain, so all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. This is God's word. Amen. We are in a series called Counterculture where we're discussing how the church is called to be a countercultural movement within the world um, to show the world God's love through our life together. And last week we talked about what it looks like for us to be a city within a city, showing the, the, the surrounding city and people around us the love of God through how we live and work and serve and give of our lives and seek the peace and prosperity of our city. And part of being a city is having a mayor. And part of being a kingdom is having a king. So today, we are going to talk about politics. And I'll let you know how it goes after. (laughs) We're not going to talk about politics because it's easy. We're going to talk about it because it's hard. Because being a countercultural movement in the world, it means that we've got to tackle some hard issues. We've got to tackle some tough topics. We can't shy away from them. And politics is difficult. I mean, politics is difficult, isn't it? It's frustrating. I have to say, man, okay, I just got to stop watching TV. No more debates. No more news shows. I just, I just got to step away for a minute because it's so frustrating and it's tense. Have you guys had those conversations yet with anybody that's voting differently from you? <laughs> the other day, I was um, at a lunch table with two friends, and we were sitting there, and the uh, topic turned to politics. And it was interesting, just kind of, if you weren't even in, this, in the um, conversation, if you were just watching, you would see, like, both of their body language changed, <laughs> and their tone changed, and then they looked at me, and they were like, well, what do you think, Vince? Don't do that to me. Come on, man. <laughs> Jesus for president. 
<laughs> Why did I feel that way? Well, I felt that way because I'm aware of something, and that is that in, in political seasons, in times where we're voting, they can actually destroy relationships and trust. How many of you have ever judged someone else because you assumed that there was no good reason for them to vote differently than you did? I have. How many of you have vilified a candidate or vilified a proposition and painted them in the worst possible light? I mean, you kind of knew you disagreed, but then you just kind of took it to the next level. Maybe even got to the point where you're like, they're evil. That's what politics can do to us. It can bring out the worst in us. I was uh, reminded of a periodical that, that came out recently in Relevant Magazine. Um, just so you know, I'm hip and cool. Uh, <laughs> but I love their point. They said this. They said, political discourse is the Las Vegas of Christianity. The environment in which our sin is excused. Hate is winked at. Fear is perpetrated. And strife is applauded. Go wild, Christ follower. You have no consequences here. Jesus doesn't live in Vegas. You've got a point, don't they? So how can we engage in the political process in a way that seeks to be a counter-cultural movement and yet remain credible witnesses to God's love? So we're going to look briefly at this text. I, I love this text in Scripture because um, we see a great example from one of God's representatives that shows us how to enter into the political conversations that can be incredibly messy. So in this Bible story, we see the prophet Samuel, who's also a judge in ancient Israel. And he's addressing the subject of a king. This is actually the, the end of a political conversation, a political argument, if you will, that's been going on for five chapters since chapter eight. In the background, just so you understand, the people of Israel, they demanded a king. They said, we want a king. Look at all the other cool kids. They have one. Can we get one too? And he said, guys, you don't get it. God is your king. You don't need a human king. And they said, ah, we kind of want one though. And he said, no, look, they're going to take advantage of you. They're going to lead you astray. They're going to lead you through self-centeredness and raise themselves up and make you slaves. And they said, yeah kind of still want one. <laughs> awesome, right? So um, what we see here is that people were looking to the king to provide something that God is supposed to provide. And I think, wow, we've, we've heard that in, in our day and age too, haven't we? Like just listen to the news. The Republicans tend to say this about the Democrats. The Republicans say the Democrats are, are looking to the government to do things that it shouldn't do. But the Democrats are, are saying the same thing about the Republicans. They're saying, you guys look to the invisible hand of free market capitalism to do things it can't do. So which is right? Well, in this story, Samuel goes to God and he complains. He's like, God, you won't believe these people. You won't believe what they're doing. It's so depressing and so infuriating. And God says, well, Samuel, wait, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And God tells something startling to Samuel. He says this, go ahead and give the people a king. So they reject God. They reject Samuel's advice. And God says, go ahead and give them what they want. And in verse 13, we see 
we just read, Samuel tells them they'll get a king. And verse 19 tells us what happens next. Once they finally get what they want, they feel so guilty for what they've done. Let's read this together. All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil of asking for ourselves a king. So God lets them have what they want and then they feel guilty. Has that ever happened to you before? You're longing for something, you want it, and God gives it to you, and you're like, ah, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so the people ask Samuel for help. They confess, and in verse 19, they say, please pray for us. What does Samuel do? They've done everything wrong. They've ignored his, his advice. They've, they voted the wrong way. What do most people do when things don't go our way? We complain. We get bitter, don't we? Reject people, especially when it's politics. How many times, if I had a penny for every time I've heard somebody say, I'm moving to Canada if so-and-so gets in, right? From both sides of the aisle, we're going to have a mass exodus to Canada. (laughs) But what does Samuel do? Samuel doesn't move to Canada, which didn't exist at this time. Samuel actually images God in his response. He pursues relationship. Look at verses 20 to 24. Here's some of the things to highlight. He says, don't be afraid, even though you messed up. Don't turn away from God and chase empty things like idols. But serve the Lord with all your heart, and the Lord will not forsake his people. And absolutely, of course I'll pray for you. Of course, I'm not going to leave you. I'm here. I'm with you. I'm committed, even though you did this thing. I'm sticking with you, and I'm going to teach you what is good and what is right. But, verse 25, but if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. And that part shocks me. Because at the end of this discourse from Samuel, I expected him to see, I'm glad you finally realized the error of your ways. Cool, let's get rid of the king and go back to God being king. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't denounce politics. Instead, he says, life can still work out with God. Here's the key. You need to put God first and you still need to obey God. Without a king, God is your king. But with a king, God is still your ultimate king. And you need to put God first. You have an ultimate king. You have an ultimate kingdom that you're living for. But now there are earthly kings and earthly kingdoms that you are under. So how do we balance that tension? How do we honor the government you have but you also put your ultimate hope in God. And this is Samuel's resolution. He's disagreed with getting the king. He disagreed. He was right to disagree. But Samuel doesn't shun them. Samuel doesn't guilt them or reject them. He rolls up his sleeves and he enters into the messy compromise of politics. And sure, it's not an ideal political situation. So Samuel begins to talk to them about how to turn this non-ideal situation into one that will honor God and bring about a blessed life. Hope's not lost, guys. We can still make the best of this situation, but we need to honor God and put him first. So what's the point? In this, we see God's heart for us. When we push God away, he stays with us. I mean, and they pushed him away, didn't they? They literally rejected him as king. They said, get out of here. We want a human king, and God stays with them. Isn't isn't that good news for your heart today? 
And God says, like he, like he says in Deuteronomy 31, he will never leave you nor forsake you. That's good news for our heart, but it's also good news for how you live. I'll tell you why. Because God does to you what he wants to do through you, right? In other words, it's not only God's heart to stay with people who, don't dis- who, who disagree with him and reject him. It's also the new heart that he puts in us as his people. God wants us to image him and stick with others through political discussions even when we disagree with them, especially when we disagree with them. But how do you actually do this? It sounds great on paper, but how do we do this? How can we learn to bring our faith into politics in a way that will build unity in the church and be a blessing to our city? And that's what we're gonna spend a majority of the rest of our time on here today. How can we practically enter into the messy compromise of politics? How can we encourage people inside the church and outside the church? How can we be gracefully and lovingly pointing people to Jesus in the middle of this mess? And this is huge because we, we want to be a countercultural movement that's bringing our faith into our politics in such a way that's blessing our city and blessing the church and pointing people to Jesus. Amen? So to do this, number one, you need to understand other perspectives and foster real dialogue. One of my favorite quotes of all time, I love the book Reason for God. You guys know I quote Tim Keller a lot here. Um, but Tim Keller, in uh, one of my favorite quotes ever by him, says this. There needs to be understanding, sympathy, and respect for the other side that did not exist before. Then people will rise to the level of disagreement rather than simply denouncing one another. There's a huge difference between disagreement and denouncing. Huge, huge difference. (laughs) That may have slipped. (laughs) Denouncing is when you're vilifying somebody, a person's perspective, right? You're not even listening to their main point. Have you ever done that before? You're in an argument with somebody, maybe not even political, anything. And you're not even really listening to their point. You're really just listening strategically so you can find the words, so you can pounce on them, right? (laughs) Anybody? That's denouncing. I've done that. Dismissing without truly listening. But Keller's telling us that we need to rise to a level away from denouncing up to disagreeing. How? Write this on your heart. I love what he says. This happens when each side has learned to represent the other's argument in its strongest and most positive form. Have you done that before? You ever been in a political conversation with someone and you made the choice to represent their side of the disagreement in its strongest, most positive form. You know, seeking first to understand before trying to be understood. And we can back this up and let's just apply this broadly to all of our disagreements because if you're human, you disagree. If you're married, you disagree more. So listen in. When you disagree, are you concerned with building people and relationships or building your own ego and your own identity. Proving you're right or growing in understanding. Telling, listening. Holding your positions in, in, um, in a way that you can just kind of shove them down somebody's throat or are you holding your, your positions with humility and engaging in genuine, humble inquiry? You're just trying to build a case against somebody. 
Keller says we need to actually seek to understand and represent the other side's argument in its strongest and most positive form. He says, only then is it safe and fair to disagree with it. It's not safe, it's not fair to disagree with caricatures or simplistic versions of the other side's arguments that don't actually represent their heart or all the depth of thought that's gone into it. That makes people who are unintelligent, that makes people who don't understand the other side, who don't care what the other side has to say, they just want enough information to make the other side look stupid and their side look smart. That's called pride. It's not the character of God. Amen? And the the hard part of it is that in our culture, there's evangelists for this that are like hell bent on presenting their opponent's arguments in like the worst possible light. They're called talk show hosts, right? (laughs) And they care about ratings. I'll tell you, here's here's how you do it. If you want to run a successful talk show, I'll tell you, here's the formula, right? You pick up an issue, any issue, doesn't matter, and you get the two most polarizing people on any issue. Get them in the same room. They don't represent 90% of the culture, right? They represent like 5%, 5%, maybe. Get them in there and have them go at it. Start a fight, right? And just clock it. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Cut to commercial. Sell a Lexus, right? Get the ratings and then sell stuff. That is how you run a successful show. And the thing is, that's entertainment in our society. That's funny. The problem is it started to influence our society. We've actually started to argue that way. If you don't believe me, go on Facebook. Just read anything that anybody has put out in the last three or four months. Am I right? (laughs) But we're not called to do that. We're called to be humble, wise, learners, two ears and one mouth. Listen, listen. Hold your opinions with humility. And next time you get into any disagreements, not just politics, Take a second and pause and ask yourself something. Am I truly seeking to understand the other side in their heart? Or really seeking to? If we do that, Tim Keller says, that achieves civility in a pluralistic society, which is no small thing. I've been part of environments where if I wasn't voting Democrat, I wasn't really a Christian. I've been in other environments where if I wasn't voting Republican, I wasn't really a Christian. Are there any real Christians? Are they all libertarian? Come on. Like. Denouncing the other side doesn't help. Understanding it does. Amen? All right. So number one. Hey, good. You guys are with me. It's going better than I thought. Number one, you need to understand other perspectives and foster real dialogue. Number two, you need to understand that both conservatives and liberals reflect aspects of God's kingdom. For instance, think about the problems in our nation. What's broken? Is it the individuals or is it society at large? Both, yeah. (laughs) And Republican policies tend to focus on individuals and Democrat policies tend to focus on society and God cares about both. He cares about both. God calls us to thoughtfully and prayerfully invest in bringing peace and prosperity to the place he sent us. So we're gonna look briefly at how these two sides match up and just... To be honest, this is very 
thin level. Like we can talk about this way deeper, but I have like 30 minutes total. And so this is just a survey in some of the differences. It's not exhaustive, okay? So first, there's good and bad on both sides. Number one, the left, right? The Democrat, the, the more liberal side tends to emphasize social justice. The right tends to in- emphasize individual rights. Which one is both? Or which one is right? <laughs> both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was a great teacher when I was a sixth grade teacher. <laughs> which one is 49? Gosh. <laughs> wow. There's good and bad on both sides. The, the left focuses on community at large first. The right tends to focus on the self and nuclear family first. Which of these both are... <laughs> Somebody want to preach this? <laughs> I love this. I pulled this from Reason for God. This is great. The left expects citizens to be held legally accountable for their use of wealth, but totally autonomous in other areas such as personal morality. While the right expects citizens to be held legally accountable in areas of personal morality, but totally autonomous in the use of their wealth. Which one of these things best reflects God's heart? Oh, got it. Yeah. And both sides have solutions to the problems that are problematic. Why? Because they're full of people. People are, are broken and people ain't perfect. So the left trusts big government and the right trusts big business. Big government's full of people who are sinful and selfish apart from God's grace, prone to wonder and prone to seek their own self-advantage. But so is big business, full of imperfect people who just care about bottom lines. And the left side, policies, their, their ideal is, is that the government should be gracious. We need to take care of those in need. On the right side, the policies are people should be responsible. We want to help people take care of themselves. And democratic Christians, one of the things you'll notice is that they tend to really focus on the kingdom of God being earthly and thisworldly, trying to bring the kingdom here. And Republican Christians tend to believe that the kingdom of God is heavenly or otherworldly. Biblically, which one is right? Both. The end of time is a picture of heaven and earth being joined above and below, meeting in the middle and God reigning over all of it and becoming one. Again, this is, I know this is a simplistic intro, but I'm just trying to paint a picture here. On both sides, there's good and there's bad. What's the bad on both sides? Well, both conservatives and liberals have weaknesses in their policy. I know all of you know that already, but I'm saying that your side also has weaknesses in its policy, right? Democratic policies can be abused by people who don't want to work. Republican policies can be abused by people who don't want to share. And both perfectly describe my four-year-old. <laughs> he never wants to... I'm not sure which political party he's going to be part of when he grows up. <laughs> both sets of policies can be abused, and they are, right? With democratic policies, large government tends to be inefficient. Programs are often not run the most efficiently, and there's a lack of accountability. And the larger the system, the, the more subject to abuse it can be both by people who are receiving from the system and people within the system who are working it. And government gets so big. Why? Why are there so many layers? Because the bigger it gets, the more accountability you need and the more people you need to add. And it just gets so big. 
And sure, businesses also struggle to stay efficient as they grow, but because government is so much larger than businesses, and because it's not required to turn a profit every year, the fiscal accountability needed to keep the government acting wisely is often absent. So what do they do? They, well, we need more money. We're going to raise taxes. And the cycle perpetuates. Again, simplistic view, but kind of a bird's eye. But on the other side, with Republican policies, small government leaves the poor behind. Many people fall through the cracks and the crevices and are severely disadvantaged. I have a quote here from John Perkins. He's one of my personal heroes from his book, With Justice for All. He's an amazing believer, a civil servant, and guy who worked for social justice for years. It's a long quote, but hang with me. He says this, free enterprise is handicapped by a serious flaw, man's greed. Both biblical history and American history remind us repeatedly that greedy men will use economic freedom to exploit, to profit at the expense of others. Employers pay employees as little as possible in order to maximize their own profits rather than treating their employees' economic interest as being as important as their own. Or to be thoroughly Christian, even more important than their own. Advertisers create markets for products which no one needs, not from a motive of servanthood, but out of greed, pure and simple. Businesses measure their success primarily by their financial profits, not by how well they glorify God and serve people. What a far cry we are from a truly Christian economy. I think he has a point there. The best Republicans, they don't hide the evils of capitalism. They're able to point out, yeah, very easy and very often capitalism and money becomes an idol in our system. And they simply say, right now, this is the best option we have. The alternatives to free market capitalism seem worse. We haven't come up with a better solution yet. And of course, that's an opinion that needs to be established by facts. I'm not saying it's, it's not provable. I'm just saying, if that's your opinion, you need to prove that the economy actually getting bigger will happen because businesses get bigger and we remove restrictions and everything will get better. That benefits everyone. It's not an airtight argument is what I'm saying. And this kind of honesty about one's own strengths and weaknesses is vital because too many people right now are highlighting the strengths of their side and the evils of the other side. But as we gain understanding, we, we realize it's, it's okay to admit your party, your group, your tribe's weaknesses. In fact, according to Tim Keller, what he said in this book, we, we should get really good at it. We should become experts at owning our own areas of weakness. So today, as we look at a divided America, let's consider that the division we see out there in our culture and even in the church may say less about the issues that divide us and may say more about our own brokenness. I love this quote from Jane Lampman. It says this, the gospel teaches that the line separating good and evil runs not between nations or political parties, but inside every human heart. What I'm saying today, if what I'm saying today is true, then both sides have noble intentions and both sides have broken solutions. And many of us have taken the bait and joined a fight against one another instead of fighting alongside one another against the evils out there. So what's the, the church look like? Here's one goal. I would love for the church to have both sides representing living in community here. 
both Democrat, Republican, right, left, liberal, conservative Christians who are quick to admit the faults of their party and quick to talk about the good of the other party. That's the third way of Jesus in politics. Be quick to admit your faults. Take the political log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of someone else's eye. If New City is going to be a truly countercultural church and show this world the ways of Jesus, our church should be filled with people from every side of the aisle, every group, every tribe, every nation. Amen? And those people should be full of love and grace for one another, humble and eager to learn from one another, always believing the best about each other. Our church should be a safe haven. Our church should be a place where we aren't afraid to talk about this stuff because we know we're family, we know we love one another, and we know we're for one another before we're for our opinions. We need conservatives and liberals committed to this. But we need to be committed to one more thing above all, and that's the gospel. The last thing you need to be convinced of is that politics can't save our nation, only the gospel can. Here's a quote from Doug Wilson. For the political activist, we must confront the realization that there is no political solution for the challenge we face. Laws won't do it. But I do not say this as a prelude to an exhortation to give up. No, we must not give up. We're told to teach all the nations how to obey every word of Jesus left to us. But before that can happen, we must baptize them. And people aren't ready to be baptized without a spirit-anointed proclamation of the gospel such that the nation turns in mass and bows down before the Lord in true humility. There's no other way to save our nation, no other salvation without a savior. And there's only one savior and his name is Jesus. In other words, while politics is no savior, politics desperately needs to be saved. I remember I was in New York. I can't wait. This Christmas, we're gonna take the family back there and hang out, but we're in New York and I went to get on this uh, thing in the playground and uh, I don't know why in the playground they don't make stuff for people my size. <laughs> so I, I got on it. it was, you know, the rocking horse thing and the spring just broke, <laughs> which was painful and embarrassing. And it's just a brief illustration to point out the fact that I put all my eggs in one basket. It wasn't made to support this, right? I put all my trust in something that was too weak. And I think that's what happens when we put our trust in politics instead of God. If you get how I feel, how I get when I feel emotionally distraught about the state of politics in our country, then you might be putting too much hope in politics to save. Okay, so what do we do? Well, there's a savior. Let's look at Jesus. First of all, for an example, and secondly, for, for the, the means by which he saves us. Briefly, Jesus didn't just pick a side with the political factions of his day. We talked about this. There was Pharisees, Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. There was all these different political factions. And what's he do? Well, he fully engages with each group in meaningful discourse. And to the conservatives of his day, Jesus looks like a liberal. I mean, he's preaching about loving the poor, seeking justice for the marginalized, telling stories where the Samaritan's the hero. He pays taxes to the government, Right? But to the liberals, Jesus looks like a conservative. He heals those connected with the Roman government or the ruling class. He even gave a Roman soldier all this high praise for his exemplary faith in Matthew 18. 
he hangs out with the Jewish ruling class, people like Nicodemus. And even though he eats with sinners, he still makes them change. He doesn't just leave them like they are. Why doesn't he just excuse their immorality? He loves them in the midst of it, but he doesn't leave them there, does he? So they try to peg Jesus. Remember this? You know, just a brief example. They try to peg Jesus and they say, hey, so are we supposed to pay our taxes to Caesar or not? And he says, bring me a coin. And he holds up the coin and he says, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. He says, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. They're like, shoot. <laughs> he keeps going this third way on us. We can't peg him. Number two, he calls followers from every walk of life, every political ideology to be informed by the gospel and bring change to the world around them. That's significant because in Jesus' own 12, like Matthew 10, or uh, I think it's Matthew 3, he describes the disciples that are there with Jesus and Matthew himself labels himself as a tax collector, which was somebody who colluded with the government. And in the same group, he's got Simon the Zealot. So you might, you might say, like, tax collectors work for the government, zealots kind of worked against the government, right? Matthew was the left-wing big government guy who made a career out of collecting taxes for the state, and Simon was the right-wing small government guy who thought that the state should just kind of keep out of people's business. But despite their opposing political viewpoints, Matthew and Simon were friends. They were in community together in the tightest group of Jesus' followers, as you read his gospel, it's like Matthew wants you to know this. Think about it. Matthew's emphasis on a tax collector and a zealot living in community together suggests something, doesn't it? It suggests a hierarchy of loyalties, especially for Christians. Our first loyalty, our first allegiance is to a king and his kingdom. It's a kingdom that's already but not yet. It's a kingdom Jesus came and inaugurated and one day he's gonna come back and he's gonna bring it in fulfillment. He's gonna consummate it. But until that day, we lovingly and humbly engaged, full of hope in that future. One more quote from C.S. Lewis. If you read history, you'll find that Christians, I don't have this quote on there, sorry. If you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next world the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with a heavenly kingdom. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this world. Our loyalty is to our king and his kingdom, amen? And that loyalty has to exceed both our loyalty to an earthly agenda, political or otherwise, and, and all the things that we would put our loyalty in somehow above God. Like, honestly, we should feel at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. And if that isn't our experience, then maybe we're rendering unto Caesar what actually belongs to God, our first allegiance. So I'm going to tell you, because of the gospel, people from different political persuasions, like we saw with Matthew and Simon, can experience a beautiful unity. How? If your first allegiance is to King Jesus, 
number one, everything else is secondary. Right? Your identity in Christ is the main source you get identity from. And number two, in Ephesians, Paul paints this beautiful picture. Paul says that on the cross, Jesus removed. He even killed the dividing wall of hostility between different people. People on the far left, on the far right, and everywhere in between. So wherever the reign of Jesus is felt, and we see this all throughout Acts, it's the testimony of the early church. Wherever the reign of Jesus is felt, differences are embraced and even celebrated as believers move toward one another in unity and in peace. And that's the third thing Jesus does. He, he enters into this volatile political landscape, much like Samuel. And I'll close with this thought. See, Samuel and Jesus both enter into the messy compromise of politics. And they love people. And they point them to God as king. But Jesus goes a bit beyond Samuel. Jesus is the good and the perfect Samuel who not only tries to redeem the broken system, but he takes the brokenness of the system on his own back. And he actually brings redemption through his own atoning death. Think about it. Jesus was alienated in our place while we were his enemies so that we would be free not to alienate ourselves from our enemies, but to draw near to them and to love them as God did for us in Christ. On the cross, Jesus was painted as a caricature. You remember that? The sign, the king of the Jews, the robe, the crown of thorns, they were mocking him. He was mocked and caricatured and demonized as we were forgiven so that we could be free from being mocked, caricatured, or demonized by our opponents and also so that we'd be freed from ever needing to mock and caricaturize and demonize them. Jesus takes on the pride. He takes on the fear that drives debate and anger and division. And he nails it to the cross with himself. So today, if you look at your past, and maybe you're like me, and you see that you've fallen short. Maybe in ways in your life you rejected God as king. You say, he's a great savior. I don't want him to be Lord of my life, though. There's areas of my life I'm going to hold back. You've rejected God as king. Or maybe you've put your ultimate hope in people and policies and politics to save you. Maybe you've used the political process, even in the last few months, to lie or divide or to vilify. It's been your own little personal Vegas. Maybe you've used that. Maybe whatever, whatever you've done, we can look at the cross today and see how God came near to turn us around, how he died for our sins. We get to remember that over communion today. And with Jesus, we get to look at this tension that we saw at this first chapter in 1 Samuel. Where it's like, wait, what are we gonna have? Are we gonna have a human king or are we gonna have God as king? In Jesus, we get both, don't we? He's the God who became man who is king. And in his death, he brings us back to God. And in his resurrection, he sends us forth to bring a new understanding of forgiveness and dialogue to our political conversations. In other words, when you believe in Jesus today and you see him entering the mess of your life, that frees you, it motivates you to enter into the mess of this world. When your heart touches Jesus and you become like him, you become able to love others in spite of their sin. To, to be hungry, to understand them more and truly listen with humility. 
you become passionate to foster the kind of dialogue that will promote unity in the midst of diversity in our church and in our city. Only the gospel will get us there, guys. Only the gospel will free our hearts to where we can do this. The gospel is what our nation needs. The gospel is what every one of us needs. So some action steps before we come up and take communion. These are suggestions. Um, as I was writing this sermon, I was just thinking about what this could look like for our community. So some really practical things. Number one, be humble. Um, you should be able to say, yeah, I've got political views and I have problems with both sides. Here's the bad with my side. Here's the good with the other side. But I'm able to be humble. Amen? Number two, pray at least as much as you criticize. This one stings for me. If you don't like a candidate, are you praying for them? I mean, didn't Jesus say, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you? So find people who disagree with you and listen and learn what it is that moves them to hold their position. Like, here's one of the best attitudes we can have in life. Everyone has something to teach me. Are you teachable? Ignorant people are not those who don't know. Ignorant people are those who refuse to learn. Number three, figure out how you can honor God with how you vote. November 8th, my birthday. (laughs) So now I'm bringing out a voting guide for all of you. If you want to give me a birthday gift, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Problem I have with voting guides is that they can stunt our growth as Christians. We don't have to wrestle. We just say, oh, vote for this guy. Vote for this proposition. Anyway, that's, that's a whole other thing. We're not going to get into that. Figure out how you can honor God with how you vote and do it in dialogue with safe people. This week, Ian and I got together. We hung out for a couple hours and we were talking about the different people and the propositions. And we didn't, we didn't agree on all of them, but Ian and I are friends. We're family. It's a safe place where I can talk about stuff and he challenges me from a different perspective. And I don't get mad at him and demonize him for his... Stances. I, I, I'm, so, in short, go talk to Ian. I'm just, <laughs> what I'm saying is, in community, are we that safe place where people can come and honestly share openly about how we feel, how they feel, and we can engage with that and listen with humility and allow the fruit of the Spirit to be present? Patience and graciousness and goodness and long suffering, peace. Everyone has something to teach me. Four, ask questions and don't try to convince or maybe don't, don't argue is another way to say that. You don't have to convince others. Just articulate your views and faith in Jesus. You don't feel like you have to argue everybody into your political camp or into Jesus for that matter. Love them. Ask questions. Listen. Five, remember there's bad and good on both sides. We need Christians on the left and the right who know the sins and idolatry and brokenness on both the left and the right and who know all the righteousness and goodness of God on both the left and the right. I'm gonna close this out with a a quote from a song, Derek Webb, uh, one of my favorite songs. The title is A King and a Kingdom. And he says this, he says, who's your brother, who's your sister? He just walked past you, I think you missed her. As we're all migrating to the place where our father lives because we married into a family of immigrants. And in the course, he says, my first allegiance is not to a flag, a country, or a man. 
My first allegiance is not to democracy or blood, but to a king and a kingdom. And that's what I hope our first allegiance is today as Christians. That we would see God and honor him above all and let everything else be secondary. And that we would allow his character to be formed in us in how we love one another and deal with one another, especially those who disagree with us. Amen. So this morning, we're gonna take a few minutes to respond. And here's what I want you to do. A little instruction. Uh, Daryl's gonna come up and play. And I want you to feel free to pray right where you're at or join in and sing along. Um, you're gonna enter up into a time of communion whenever you feel led. And I want you to come take a piece of bread and dip it into the, the juice. And you can take it back to your seat and pray alone or with someone who's near you. And we're, we're, we're not going to do the dialogue thing as much today. We're going to do some more time one-on-one with God. And we're just going to remember together as we pray and sing. We're going to remember together the life and the love that Jesus poured out on the cross for us. And in remembering the gospel, we're going to ask Christ to change us and make us more like him. Amen? Passionate, but humble and loving. Because there's all these things that we just talked about that they're him. He's the embodiment of all this. So we want to celebrate. And if you're a non-Christian here this morning, you're just kind of visiting and checking things out, I'm so glad you're here. We're stoked you're here. And uh, we love you. Please come back. We'd love to take you out to lunch. Somebody here will. I will if nobody else will. I'd love to. Absolutely. But um, this thing right here, this communion piece, it's, 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 we hold it as sacred. It's really a family thing for those who have given their hearts to Christ and are believers. So we'd ask you not to do this, but... We want you to also feel back to, feel free to just hang back and watch and just check it out. But maybe join in and sing. Maybe just pray this prayer today if you're not a believer here. Say, hey God, if this is real, help me to believe. I mean, I don't know if it's real. If it's not real, I don't want to. But if it's real, help me to believe. And I've asked people from our prayer team to come up. And if anyone, whether you're a non-believer today or if you're a Christian, I'd love for you to come over here. We want to pray for you. We want to bless you. So regardless of what it is today, if it's, if it's you, you know, you hurt your pinky last night or whether it's some huge need in your life, you need healing, whether it's you want to believe, whether it's something you're struggling with emotionally, we want to pray over you and bless you today. So please come up. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a countercultural family in this city. We want to show San Diego your love through our life together. And that never seems harder than these divisive issues like politics. So thanks for this reminder today that even when we make foolish decisions, you don't run, turn your back on us, but you draw near to us with your patience and grace. Thank you that the perfect picture of that is that you sent your son to enter into our mess and love us in the middle of it. You didn't wait until we got perfect, but right in the thick of our self-centered, ignorant, sinful moments, you sent your son to take our place. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd help us to be overwhelmed with gratitude at the grace you've given us so that we could live that way towards one another. Fill us with the willingness not to, not to fight or to flee or to freeze, but to, to move forward toward one another and toward a culture that's in need of you. 
Give us power to walk humbly toward one another. To pray more. To honor you. To ask questions and to listen to the answers with genuine curiosity and humility and a hunger to learn. And most of all, to remember our hope is in you. Every political party will have good and bad, but what we're longing for is you. Every political party, every nation will pass away, but but our king and his kingdom is what we hope and, and live for. So thank you for this opportunity to connect with you this morning. Speak to us as we come and partake in communion and remember your love for us that sent you to the cross to break down the walls of hostility that divided us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said,